0: Welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin. And this is a podcast for fans who know that Captain Marvel isn't the first movie full of queer subtext that was made in partnership with the armed forces. There's also Top Gun. And Captain Marvel's politics, I think are about a thousand times better. Um, So that's right. We're talking about Captain Marvel movie. This is a complex movie that I think deserves a complex conversation, which is what we're here for today. But I will say right off the bat, it's good. I enjoyed it. You should see it. Joining me is three-time champion guest, T. Fogner. T. Fogner, sorry, Fugner, ah, (laughs) uh, is the editorial director for comics at King Features Syndicate. When she's not reading comics for work, she's reading comics for fun, drama comics, dressing up as comic book characters or watching comic adaptations on television. T is at at T. Berry Blue on everything. Hey, T. Hi. And joining me is three-time champion guest, Felicia Perez. Felicia is the Innovation Director at the Center for Story-Based Strategy, uh, one of the organizations that I worked with for Black Panther Fan Activist Con, my co-conspirator there. Uh, Felicia previously worked at the United Workers Congress, ACLU of Southern California, and was a high school social studies teacher for twelve years at the Los Angeles Unified School District, where she was also an active union leader and chapter chair of the United Teachers of Los
1: Angeles. Hello, Felicia. Hello. And when we're three-time champions, is this like punch card? Like, is do we get a free yes. something after five?
2: Free frozen yes. yogurt.
0: <laughs>
1: yes. for yogurt for everyone. <laughs> Excellent.
0: I have, so I, I've, been, I've been pulling my hair out about the public response to Captain Marvel, and I'm not just talking about the right-wing haters. People on the left will need to hold in their minds two seemingly contradictory things. That Captain Marvel is an important moment for many women and girls, and also simultaneously that the U.S. military is an engine of white supremacy and rape, even the rape of 25% of its own female members. You know, they they made this movie with Air Force approval and with press junkets and pre-movie ads. They're trying to use the movie as an enlistment vehicle. Uh, But I actually think there's a lot of anti-war messages in the story itself. And meanwhile, we can also see the movie's importance to women and girls. Uh, It's also going to be an important movie for boys because they need to grow up seeing women as superheroes and as protagonists in their own stories. This may actually be the only movie with a woman lead some boys see all year, which is sad as hell. And the, the movie was important to me for an issue that I actually didn't even foresee as coming up, and that's its handling of the scrolls, uh, which was the topic of my essay for Wired.com uh, for here on out, I guess, let's say there's spoilers. The name I wanted to call my essay was "Scrolls or People Too. Uh, so yes, this movie is being used as military propaganda, but it's also a movie with content that is way more complex than that. And it meant a lot to me as a queer Jew in particular. So that's enough for me. I want to talk to my guests. I have a number of big topics I wanted to hit, but um, let's start it out. I, I guess uh, I should say, you know, c- coming coming into the movie, I was already thinking about the sort of military message because the uh, pro, the, the movie tour where they were going around the country and showing it to military families and also just knowing how movies that use the air force and things like that generally have to be made in conjunction with military approval in order to get access to filming on like with military planes and whatnot. Like I was already thinking about that and I was really concerned about how that would go. But I I left finding like that. I thought the movie had a lot of anti-war messages in it as well. Um, And I, I think my end assessment was like, If you entered the theater being pro-military, you'd probably leave the theater being pro-military. And if you entered the theater being critical of the military, you would leave the theater being critical of the military. What do you guys think?
2: Um, So for me, one of the things that I thought was really ironic is that, yeah, they did this entire, and I don't know if this showed at every theater, but they did this entire like rah-rah Air Force thing in the, like in those weird preview ads that they show for the half hour before the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, and then they get into the movie and after spending all this money to convince women and girls that the Air Force is a great place for them, the movie is just like telling you how much the Air Force treats women badly. And so...
1: <laughs> so true.
2: It was really it was really funny to me because they really... The, you know, the Air Force barely comes up. Um, and when it does, it's all in the context of how poorly um, Carol and Maria were treated while they were in the air force and how they Mm -hmm. had to find other opportunities in order to fly. And then really the only other military that we see is the Cree military, which is horrible.
0: Yeah. I really felt like the Cree military was a stand in for the U S military. Like it's this big hegemonic power that just tries to trample over everyone else and just really frames itself as being the only defenders of justice in the world.
2: And then claims that all of the refugees are terrorists.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That opening scene where they're at Torfa, I fully expected them to accidentally bomb a funeral. Ooh. Yeah. Felicia, what were you thinking about that? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think it was complicated for me. I I, I appreciate your opening statement about if you were already on one side of either being pro or... Uh, concerned and critical of the military that you would have left the same. And I actually don't necessarily know that I believe that. I think Mm. that some of the, um, you know, ways in which the military has been a trope in several different, you know, stories and, and films aimed at young people or not for so many years has made it such that it's complicated. Like, I'm very judgmental and critical and not sanctioning at all um state sanctioned violence which ultimately is going to be definitely held at the hands of the US military and yet every time i see people free mostly in that sort of like free trope of flying um i sort of forget right like there are moments mm. uh in these films where i'm constantly being asked to suspend my very strong beliefs in being against state sanctioned violence from any film that has, um, you know, police officers in it, uh, police as main characters. Um, you know, an earlier conversation that we had Alana was on Spider-Man into the universe, um, or Spider-Verse rather, where, you know, his dad's a cop and the cops are always the real life superheroes. Like that's usually what happens in, in in a wide variety of these films. Superheroes in the real world, quote unquote, have badges and uniforms and guns and superheroes in the sort of like comic fantastical world have all different kinds of superpowers that they get to have. And it may not necessarily be a gun or a tank or a nuclear weapon um, at the hands of some sort of missile. Um, And so for me, I think what's complicated is that we're going to talk about, you know, um, the U.S. Air Force, but we're going to not talk about S.H.I.E.L.D. We're not going to talk about Mm -hmm. what Nick Fury represents and what all of these superheroes as Avengers represent. So I think that there's there are some things that we we say, no, I won't swallow that. But over here, like, oh, well, that tastes good. You know, like that's, that's got, a, it's got a little sugar on it. And that one helps it go down a little bit easier. Like, I think that, I think that if we're going to be critical, we have to be critical across the line. And that might mean not enjoying or supporting any of these movies. And I don't know that I'm ready to do that either. So while yeah. I am critical of all of these things at a very, like, you know, uh, visceral level, the fact that I go see any of these films and that I enjoy seeing any, you know, marginalized group uh, or character or representative have any sort of power and be able to fight back is the major contradiction that I have um, when, I, when I sort of see these things that I hold and that I have to sort of contend with as a, as a fan and a viewer um, who's grown up to be incredibly critical. In, in 1995, coincidentally, um, that was my, my freshman year in college, Uh, And when I was graduating in in high school in 1994 and wasn't sure what I wanted to do with my life, the Air Force was actually something that I personally considered. Um, And the only reason why I ended up not doing it is because I have been, you know, out uh, since I was 14 and learning about Don't Ask, Don't Tell made it seem like that wasn't something that I was willing to do. And so Mm -hmm. I think that there's, there's uh, there's a lot there. Uh, There's a lot about people's consciousness and development. And then what we do um, at some point when we want to be entertained. And it still is in contradiction with some of our core values as well.
0: And it's hard because like Nick Fury is so charming. And like you have these, especially in this movie, like where he's like less, you know, less embittered than he becomes later. Right.
1: Right. Right.
2: Well, I actually have a question about that because I feel like, Nick Fury in this movie versus Nick Fury in the rest of the Avengers movies, where we're seeing him later um, after he's become the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., um, is that there's, I think, a difference in Captain Marvel where the basically the two S.H.I.E.L.D. agents that we're supposed to sympathize with, which are obviously, I think, Fury and Coulson, are the two who are consistently um kind of undermining the rest of shield
1: mm-hmm. and yet they don't yeah, get but fired I think
2: under-
1: for it yeah I, I think undermining the system though is still like it's the kamala harris perspective like i'm going <laughs> to change the system from inside you know like and I, I don't necessarily know that that is uh that's the answer that many of us are, are looking for either um can you change an institution that by design the institution is corrupt and not able to really be changed at all. It changes people, it doesn't change the institution. So while I appreciate that they are resistors in all of the different roles that they play, they're still in particular roles of, of gross injustice uh, across the board.
2: Well, I'm not necessarily but... saying that it's better, but what's interesting to me about it is that then Nick Fury ends up becoming the institution.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. So
2: you, you know, so I think it's like within this movie, I think they were trying to do something very specific with those characters, but then what we know about those characters later on is that they both actually end up becoming the director of Shield at some point.
1: You know, it's interesting Ooh. because when you have when you have the uh scrolls, you know, doing their their shape shifting, they're not picking like just anybody to shape shift into all the time. Right? Yeah. Like you've got these surfers, you've got this weird sort of, you know, uh, other sort of uh, homage to all these different films. That's definitely sort of a a point break uh, homage of these surfers (laughs) on the run, right? Mm -hmm. Like I read somewhere that the film had like 16 different homages to different films, um, particularly from the 90s and, and early thousands. But I think that one of the things is that you know, we have our head leader infiltrating or assimilating, if you will, into becoming the leader uh, of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well, right? Like Nick Fury's boss is what he shapeshifts into. Yeah. And so I think that, that that quote shapeshifting or assimilating or that idea of pretending to be somewhere where you're really not um, is also what Nick Fury is doing and what you're alluding to in, in some ways, right? Like so you have throughout the film this idea of shapeshift into a place that can give you enough power to actually change different power forces. And so I think that there's a theme around that uh, throughout the film.
0: Yes. Oh, my God, so much. And I want to throw in some fact from the comic, though, about military, which is like in the comics, in her original story, like origin story from like the 68, basically, uh, Carol joins the military because her dad won't pay for her to go to college and is basically just trying to marry her off. And then she leaves the military because she refuses to turn in an undocumented alien, AKA the original Captain Marvel character, like character, Captain Marvel. So it's sort of like she, she joins the military, uh, because she's being marginalized and she leaves the military because she's been marginalized by the military for refusing to go along with it. So it's sort of like a consistent theme in her stories Mm -hmm. here. Um,
2: well, also, and because she's trying to protect what she sees as a marginalized person. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. I think the biggest part of the film that was clearly a like, no holds bar, we are not going to try and, and coat this or shape shift it or assimilate it or hide it in plain sight, so to speak, was the moment where she's trying to change the colors of her uniform from being mm-hmm. a Cree green to something else. And um, I'm forgetting the daughter's name, lifts up her t-shirt, Monica, right? She lifts up her t-shirt and it clearly says U.S. Air Force on it. And she like rubs it on the little display arm piece that then changes the colors to be a very clear uh, blue, uh, red and, and gold missing the white there. So white has turned to gold, which is what I always see when I see white people. It's the gold people. Everybody, <laughs> here comes the gold. But um, so I oh, think man. that uh, that that is a very, that was the main part that really stuck to me. I was like, and there's the commercial. <laughs> yeah,
0: you know, yeah, you're right. No, that was that, hard. Yeah. That was hard. I, I mean, also speaking of Carol's experience in military, like, you know, I and a lot of folks really read there being a lot of queer subtext between Carol and maria like to the point where it felt like you know they were a couple and monica was basically their daughter and you know they had to keep everything on the you know private because of don't ask don't tell and Mm -hmm. so with you know they're they're in the military they're dealing with don't ask don't tell and so much of the movie is carol trying to understand her past and dealing with how she's been forced to sublimate who she truly is in order to be in the kree military like you know john Jan Rog is always like oh you can't show your powers you can't let your emotions be free and like that was exactly the same thing that was happening to her in the air force like not just are all of her interactions with the air force ones of men shitting on her but like she is in hiding in the military and she's in hiding in the kree military and the scroll are in hiding and like i don't know there's just a lot of assimilation metaphors there but i I really strongly left being like there a couple like especially feeling like it from the 90s like I know that there's lots <laughs> of culturally specific reasons to call yeah. someone auntie like particularly in like you know in, in in a black family but I still was like yeah that's your auntie A.K.A your mom's girlfriend.
1: There were so many holding the gaze scenes like there were so many moments yes. where it's just like no no talking. I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me. And I was like, okay, so when is it gonna happen? (laughs) Like the hell gaze throughout the film. And then that last part towards the end where they're like, you know, saying goodbye to one another. I was like, and now it's perfect. I can hear the grasshoppers in the background. It's dark with natural mood lighting. Is this (laughs) where we're gonna have it? And it was like, no, this is not where we're gonna have it. I was like, really? Okay. And I was surrounded by children and families who like, this was interesting this has never happened to me before. I was in a movie surrounded by full families. And there was a moment like in that, are they gonna kiss? Nobody was holding their breath. Like, how am I gonna explain this to Bobby? What is Sarah gonna think when she sees this? But I almost felt like the whole movie theater was like, damn, when they didn't kiss. I almost (laughs) felt like there was disappointment in the air instead of concern in the air about how am I going to explain this conversation? But instead, like the kids were like, why didn't they? They clearly loved each other. Right. So that was a, that was a very interesting uh, moment for me.
0: Oh yeah. So I mentioned earlier, you know, the connection to Top Gun. And you know, when they are in the, when Maria Maria and Carol are in the airport, in the airplanes and they're throwing signs to each other, like the closest the movie really comes to a Top Gun moment is that movie. And as I said, (laughs) if there's one thing we know about Top Gun, it's that it's very gay. (laughs) <laughs> in, but if there's another thing we know about Top Gun, like my friend's boyfriend's dad enlisted in the air force wow. in the
2: navy
0: because of Top Gun, and he like will tell you that. So it, it was effective. It was effective as propaganda. Yeah, yeah. Um, his dad Absolutely. did not meet his husband there or whatever, but he met his he met his wife. But nevertheless. <laughs>
1: why do you think i wanted to go into the air force in in 1994 <laughs> as a total was like open gun? baby dyke? it was top gun i wanted my haircut to be like tom wow. to be to be like uh, mavericks you know like tom cruise was was my idol for he was my look to for many many years i've i've been in search of my goose my whole life i think i found her oh Aww. Aww. Aww,
0: really good and she's not a cat that's great
1: she's not a cat but can we talk about pussy power that came out in that film? Like, when, when the cat becomes the also shape-shifting, assimilating, hiding in plain sight, you know, superhero as well, there, that moment where the cat becomes this incredibly powerful inner being that comes out and is exposed, I literally turned to the people I was seeing the movie with and I was like, if that's not an example of pussy power, I don't know what is. So, I mean, it was it was pretty, it was pretty amazing in there with the cat.
2: Oh that's so funny. So for me like I I kept it was one of those things that I was anticipating and before the before I saw the movie I kept seeing like oh yeah, and the cat and the cat and the cat and I was like it's a flurkin and it better be a flurkin. Um <laughs> and yeah, and I think I I feel like my excitement about it actually being a flurkin completely made me not even notice that but you're completely right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Too much flurkin fan. What? I no. I
0: I, I I and just the the way the, the scroll interacted with it. Like it was like shapeshifter recognized shapeshifter. Yeah. You know. They're like, "Oh, I know what that
2: is." Well, what's funny is that in the comics, the first person who reacts to the Flirkin that way is Rocket uh-huh. Raccoon. Mm-hmm. so mm. yeah and so it's this very funny like well it's a raccoon of course you hate a cat um and then they all realize that it isn't just a cat but um but yeah it was it, it was cool to see i love the whole you know the concept that you have these animals that from a different planet or a different galaxy they might look like they're the same on the outside but there's something completely different
0: you know, one sort of like last piece for me. I mean, I'm sure I'll end up talking about it more. So, excuse me in advance about the military and the the contrast in there is like, you know, I really focused on how the movie, you know, because I wanted to like the movie in part, right? But how the and and because there's a history in the comics of the Kree Skrull War itself was a very like, oh, explicit, yeah. heavy-handed condemnation of the Vietnam War. Like, the history yes. of the pre-Skrull War in Marvel Comics is basically a thing where you're presented with these two aliens groups and you're supposed to realize very quickly, like, this is a millennium-long slog. Both sides are terrible and no one's going to win. I hope the U.S. keeps out of it. It's, like, basically the message of this comic from 1971 and 72. Um, but, uh, you know, coming in, like, whining and looking for, you know, anti-military messages, the the, the challenge is, like, you know, you have all these moments where marvell and captain marvel are like oh i'm not going to fight your war i'm going to end it and like i could see pro-military people coming in seeing those anti-violence messages and saying yes and of course the u.s military is how we maintain that peace um even though i really think the Cree army which is evil looks a lot like the U.S. military
2: so i i really felt that way at first when they first the first time they were like we're not going to fight a war we're going to end it i was like oh god because they're building some kind of weapon um and I think that the movie too kind of, sort of you know that there's a light speed engine whatever but you don't really know what it is and at the beginning that's really what I thought they were saying um and then obviously you find out it's the tesseract and that's what's really interesting is that moment when you realize that when marvell said she wasn't fighting a war she really meant she wasn't fighting a war that what she was going to do was find ways for these refugees to get as far away from the people who were pursuing them as possible
1: Mm -hmm. yeah i i I really want to go back to to goose for a minute okay Uh, to (laughs) to the cat only because um I want to mention that uh, I've been reading about uh, Goose the cat, the uh, Flurkin, and that it was originally uh, introduced in the comics and called Chewy, as yes. a nod to, to Star Wars, and that it's in this film that they wanted a nod, several nods, I think, to Top Gun, and that's why they changed the name of the Flurkin character from Chewy to Goose. Um, so I think that there's there's a lot of moments throughout the story where there's these sort of homages to other films that are also these sort of propaganda Hollywood films for for military recruitment and whatnot. Um and the military does such a good job of like undercover <laughs> recruitment videos um, w- without needing a T-shirt worn by a character that then clearly says um, U.S. Armed Forces and in, in U.S. Air Force. But um, I think that in terms of what you all are saying, coming back to this particular moment in conversation, um, I think that there's a lot of moments where the folks who are not only marginalized in real life characters, but also marginalized in their, um, sort of like stardom, right? We've got women who are constantly saying like, no, that's not, you know, I'm trying to do this thing. You've got fury. Who's this, you know, African-American man who's trying to do this thing. You've got the scrolls who are also, you know, like not necessarily, um, You know from from earth but definitely are explaining and sharing their sort of like minority marginalized status and so i think that what's interesting is how much um how much power in terms of speaking and screen time these particular folks have versus folks who are sort of silent um and so i Mm -hmm. see a lot of the sort of you know um allies if you will um as being the most sort of like not seen and quiet characters and yet they they do some very important things to really help um, those front and center characters, like move this narrative of, of changing a, a sort of, you know, moment that's happening by resisting further. So I also saw that um, and was super excited about sort of these examples of, well, if you want to help people, you don't necessarily have to do the thing. You could also be helping in these other ways that don't necessarily put you front and center. That's real. That's
0: a
2: really... I, that's a really really interesting take on that because one of the things that i did notice in the movie was specifically that basically the you know the people with the biggest speaking roles and the people who get the most screen time in this you've got you've got carol you've got who is a white woman you've mm-hmm. got maria who is a black woman you've mm-hmm. got nick who is a black man and you've got the scrolls and i was just really like that was really refreshing to me, but right. thinking about it in terms of allyship and the fact that yeah, you have like Phil Coulson who says very little, mm-hmm. but really is is pretty is pretty significant in moving the plot along. I hadn't really thought about that, and that's a really cool point.
0: When I went, you know, with the scroll, which I just I probably could spend all day talking about because that's the thing I love the most from the movie. Like, I first I thought that the movie was asking you to see the world through scroll eyes, to sort of be like, hey, I know these, well, once they do the pivot in Act 3, you know, I know these aliens are the ones that look less like you, but they're actually the ones that are deserving of your support, like come and see the world through their eyes. I was like, man, that's great. And then uh, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this movie isn't actually just telling you to sympathize with the scroll. This movie is giving you the scroll to identify with as yourself. Like I left the movie being like, I have so many scroll feelings. I connect with the scroll i'm not just sympathetic to them i connect with them and i when i was working on my piece for wired i just blobbed out this like bit of text that i'm just i'm going to read it here because it's like so um the movie doesn't just show the galaxy from the scroll point of view it asks viewers to identify with them like the scroll people conceal themselves in order to survive in an oppressive world when they defend themselves the oppressors call it war like Talos racking through Carol's memories, marginalized groups, and anyone really look to other people's stories for a path to survival and to find a safe place they can inhabit as their true selves. My original version of that said we instead of they a lot, but but there you have it. Like I if for it to have been sympathetic scrolls, like that would have been enough, but for them to actually be like, no, no, we're scrolls, that's like Dianu. I mean, the the universe is like you know the U.S. military or the Cree, and then it's like actually the t- the scrolls are also you. Like I, I don't know if people with who don't have marginalized identities are going to leave the movie with the same level of attachment and identification with the scroll, but like as a Jewish person and as a queer person, I was like, yes, the scroll are the outside exoticized other who are able to conce- who are able to conceal themselves as looking like you, um, which obviously is specific to like people who have white skin who hold the white identities Um, you know, the fact that they're able to infiltrate and pass as you makes them even more dangerous to the establishment. But, Oh, what if actually they're doing the thing we're all doing here? And you know, we're all, everyone is being forced to conceal their identity and, Everyone, and, and that, uh, you know, like, yes, they're, the Skrull in the comics have been just the most maligned and brutalized alien group, frankly, overall. Like, there have been, I wrote this about, about this in my piece, like, there's individual scroll in comics who we're supposed to sympathize with. Most of those scroll are queer-coded, um, but I had not yeah. really seen a story before that expected the audience to identify with the scroll as an alien race. Like, even in the anti-Vietnam War, Kree Skrull stories of the 70s, the, the takeaway is, like, both sides suck. The takeaway is not, like, actually the Skrull are being oppressed. I mean, in the comics, the Skrull are definitely there. Are, in, you know, in the movie, it's implied that there's about a thousand, couple thousand Skrull left in the world. So it's obviously a different pow, pr, pr, point in their power versus in the most of the, the comics where the Skrull are, m- m- there's more of them and they have a planet and stuff. But, like, just to see that it's not just a few good ones, but like actually a whole perspective and a whole race and that their method of survival is similar to ours. That just fucking killed me in a good way.
1: I I'm mean, dead. this, this is all that is literally the moment in the film that was completely unanticipated for me. Yes. where I was tearing yes. up. And yes. cause I was like, you know, I'm, I'm Latinx, I'm Mexican. And I definitely identified with the scrolls and was like, interested to see who's going to go out there after this film is out and sort of all the spoilers are done and it's no longer spoilers and make a mashup of this entire film. But instead of having scrolls, it's just, you know, like it's America Ferrera. It's like, you know, yeah. like Cheech and Chong, it's like somebody else who's like, we have been trying to assimilate this entire time and then it doesn't matter whether you see us as the assimilated good ones or the ones who are trying to come over right now and take everything and, you know, all these different, you know, sort of like fear of, which is why we have a state of emergency on debate right now. Like this is definitely the timing of this film with what oh, yeah. is happening in the U.S. could not have been better timed. And I really, this is the power of science fiction, right? We can go into that world and say, that's messed up what they were doing to the scrolls. But the real conversation is not to stay in that world, but to say, what's the translation of what those sort of characters and communities and narrative look like in the real world. And we have that direct translation. And so that's the power of this film as families, as teachers, as communities, as you know, parents, as aunts and uncles and cousins to talk together young people and be like what is the translation here because this isn't just a story about a universe and a place that isn't real it's actually about one that is and that we are in and that we have our own role and place to play in and i think that the way in which the film makes the scrolls, quote most like us quote unquote is because they are families right the scrolls have a mom and a dad and there's all these little kids that come out and it's when the little kids come out that really everything shifts we seem to see humanity even in people who are quote not human by children and so there's that moment Mm -hmm. where the scrolls and carol's family and everyone is sort of like you know together in the house and it's that scene off to the left hand side where their kids are playing cards on the stairs Right. Where it's yeah. like we, we have this sort of running narrative in the U.S. about like kids don't see color kids don't see difference and I don't want to have to have these hard conversations with my white kids about racism because they're so innocent <laughs> meanwhile all of these other families of color in particular or marginalized communities aren't in the the privilege of having the choice of having the quote hard conversation right and so I think that it's very interesting that the kid that the uh, kid scroll gets to identify and play with and become human in that sort of like you see me as a person way is an African American child, right? It's an African American's family that the Scrolls mm-hmm. family is interacting with. And so I think there's there's so many layers and upon layers of like being able to see yourself in this film. I don't know that I like seeing myself as the alien in that that is the way that we are being characterized in the real world as the illegal alien, but I definitely enjoy seeing myself somewhere. I almost, like, I actually teared up when
0: uh, uh, Talos, who who, is played by Ben Mendelsohn, who just fucking knocked my socks off, and who was, by the way, Mm -hmm. Jewish, which I think is significant, Um, when Mm -hmm. he's joking about, like, how he didn't really mind being in... I mean, he's sort of saying it jokingly. Like, I don't get the feeling it's deeply... It's more like a personal self-dismissal joke. Like, oh, I didn't mind playing your boss. I had such pretty blue eyes. Yeah. And the way Mm -hmm. Monica, the girl, says... Don't change to the little, to the little girl uh, yeah. scroll. Like don't change your eyes. Scrolls are really pretty. I was mm-hmm. like, oh God, Like just sort of like feeling like she has to go out of her way to make clear to them that like, you know, you're beautiful the way you are and you don't have to assimilate yourself without like being completely unprompted that
1: that was an important point for her to make. But like, clearly she makes that point because somebody made that point to her. Right. To her. Like That's what I'm yep. saying is the yes. connection is that she's repeating what somebody told her because that mm-hmm. is the world she lives in. And a white kid was never going to be able to say that. And a white kid probably yeah. wasn't going to say that because they don't yeah. get that narrative reinforced yeah. as a like must believe because you're not going to see it in the world
2: yeah a white kid would think that oh changing your eye color is a novelty and it's something that you do for fun right and they would read that comment very differently Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like one of the things like and i mean i think talking about talos um um simming the boss the the shield boss is is interesting too because it's that whole you know it's it's that whole um passing privilege thing Um, that you're looking at this character who when he has the opportunity to look like someone who might be in power the way that people interact with him changes completely and I mean for me because you know I'm white um, I'm Ashkenazi Jewish as an ethnicity but I don't practice Judaism Um, but I'm also queer and non-binary and it's one of those things that the minute that I bring up aspects of my identity that are really important to me in public conversation people immediately change the way they perceive me they say well you're you know you're bringing up those aspects of your identity to be political they don't understand why it's important to bring those things up and so if I don't bring those things up people treat me like the boss if I do bring things up people treat me like the Skrull Um, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's a you know for me that was an interesting thing
0: I, I, I want to talk about one of the, the things that hit me real hard was in the alien autopsy. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, Talos is in, is in his human drag. Nick Fury is, like, just basically, like, what the fuck just happened? On their way out the door, Fury lifts up the bed sheet that's covering the scroll's body to check out what, it ha- what the scroll body has going on below the waist and recoils. And I was just like, ugh. Like, talk about othering this alien body it's like oh your your genitals are not right i i was disappointed when they ended up portraying the skulls as being like you know being uh, having men and women specifically as categories uh obviously like a more complex narrative could actually append that it's not it's not too late for marvel to do this right is what i'm saying but um but uh i loved the idea even if it was just there for a moment that like skrull had more ambiguous genitalia that like obviously he didn't lift up the, the 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 tenting and see what looked like human you know dick or human female external genitalia or else he wouldn't have recoiled uh but the fact that he felt like he needed to weigh in on that that like he deserved to be able to see this different body and to like offer his commentary on it was very realistic um and was a very much like oh yeah fuck you but like that's the thing believable yeah do you oh, yeah.
1: remember when, when I said earlier that the crowd that I saw the film with, that it, the families and children and parents didn't seem to like recoil or brace themselves for anything when it seemed like these two female characters were maybe going to kiss or embrace in some sort of romantic gesture. And yet there was the recoil when the sheet moment of lifting it up, like that was the one sexual moment. That was the one mm. moment that the crowd that i was with was like oh please don't do that why do you have to do that why do you have to look at anybody's parts and i think that <laughs> i think that that was a super interesting moment where it was like the romance of love was okay but the sexual sort of like narrative about like looking at anybody's body parts to see then what that was going to be like was not okay and coincidentally the the viewing that i had was in reno nevada not a single one of the like 30 minutes of previews was about the us military Ooh. galaxy oh, wow. theaters does not play uh, advertisements for um, military in it. I don't know if that's a policy across the board, but it is at this particular movie theater here in in wow. Sparks, actually Nevada. So we didn't have any military advertisements. In fact, we oh, had wow. all different kinds of movie advertisements, including so kind of children based one, Frozen two. We had the Frozen um, two one, yeah. right? Things like that. But we also had Rocket Man from Elton John. Yes, yeah.
2: you had that too. We did too. Yeah, is yeah, interesting.
1: We did, we did I think like showing a very queer film. <laughs> And then seeing Captain Marvel and all these things happening, I think it's very interesting what's happening with these young people in terms of the kinds of things that they are seeing, the stories that they are being shown. Like To to live life right now um, as a young person with the many contradictions of superheroes making it very clear right from wrong, and yet your country's government... (laughs) It's definitely showing you something different. Uh It's a really hard time to be a kid right now. And I I just want to say like kids out there listening, if you are like, (laughs) you're so rad, you're so cool. It's going to be all right. Live in the movies and bring that to real life. That's what I want folks to do. Well,
0: speaking of trans stuff, T, you just knocked my socks off last night with something you told me.
2: Yeah. So, well, before I go into that, one of the things I wanted to say about the sheet scene is that what's interesting is how how the movie brings up um um masculine fragility throughout it, where mm-hmm. it you get you get Nick Fury doing the thing with the sheet and then later he gets really offended by the scanner that says human male not a threat and so like it it seems like it was something where they were trying to kind of create this pattern of like this you know how how men respond to these sorts of things um but yeah so one of the things that really hit me was friday as most of you probably know um chelsea manning was sent back to prison on really spurious uh, contempt of court claims um because she she claimed constitutional right to not speak on things that she had already testified about um and It was really ironic to me that that happened. I mean, it's exactly what we were just saying about, uh, Felicia, you were saying about our government giving people a completely different message than what we're seeing in our media, Mm -hmm. Um, that we get this movie that has been really anticipated and is one of probably the major blockbusters of the year about a woman who joins a military in good faith realizes that the military is gaslighting not only her but everyone and then decides that it's her personal responsibility to try to stop that and that movie comes out the same day that Chelsea Manning gets sent back to prison um and it is exactly her narrative i mean not exactly exactly not literally exactly mm. but the 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 major points of that narrative are exactly what happened to Chelsea Manning and um, and so seeing this movie that is telling us that we should take action against militaristic imperialism on the same day that a woman is being punished for doing just that was really, really hit me hard. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you so much for bringing that in, and bringing that in, into this space, because it's so true. And I did not track all of those different main points that you just made. And so I just want you to know that when we are, when we are done later this afternoon, I will be making some sort of a meme about those two coming together uh, to see if, to see if we can get some traction, because I know that it has definitely been a big sort of, you know, like a shame on us for not doing enough to really call out, what is happening and and being done to Chelsea at this moment. And so I think that um, this is a a super powerful moment. To your point about um, that moment of male fragility example um, with Nick Fury and the scanner of, you know, this human male not not a threat. I actually didn't see, I actually liked that moment. I I didn't see it though as male, as a sort of moment of male fragility. I actually saw it as a moment of being very deliberate and saying a black man is not a threat. And I thought oh, that that shit. was actually very oh, powerful for me. That's really good. I, that was very powerful for me to be in a room where lots of white people in Sparks, Reno, Nevada were hearing a black man is not a threat. And I think that that is, I thought it, I thought it definitely was more racialized than gendered.
2: So it's wow. really interesting to me because I'm sitting here in New York City and saw this movie in a, an incredibly mixed theater in terms Mm -hmm. of racial Mm -hmm. diversity Mm -hmm. so like yeah like it's always hard to me hard for me to remember that in a lot of the country people are in movie theaters that are all white Mm
1: -hmm. yeah sorry (laughs) yeah it happens it's unfortunate it's unfortunate but it's true
0: one of the things that upset me about the movie actually was the the extremity of the violence that nick fury is expected to endure without like actually getting any help for it like he loses an eye and everybody just sort of brushes it off and doesn't acknowledge the trauma that would cause yeah like never mind the physical pain like the trauma and um that was really upsetting yeah it was one of those
2: It was one of those things where you could tell that they were trying to be very creative and clever in giving us this sort of origin story moment for Nick Fury, but they didn't actually let him feel anything about it.
1: Yeah, and he was constantly drinking and eating, which was also a sort of trope that I was not sure I appreciated. Mm. (laughs) It was always some sort of lemonade tea and some sort of chicken. And I was like, really, what's going on here?
2: I totally didn't even notice he was always eating. So Wow.
1: he <laughs> always had a glass in his hand every huh. time they were sort of, you know, in the trying to uncover uh, things. And, you know, the interesting thing with eyes, right, is that Nick Fury loses his left eye in sort of this uh, medicine in your body. And it says something uh, underlying about what you're supposed to do to heal. If you injure your right eye, you're supposed to change the way you see the world. And if you injure your left eye, you're supposed to change the way you see yourself. And he loses his eye, right, from several different injuries. But the last sort of like big one is actually the flurkin cat that, yeah. you know, slashes his eye. So if you, if you kind of put together all the things that we've been saying so far, you've got ultimate undercover pussy power that takes out... Uh, Nick Fury's eye that has to change the way he sees himself and when you lose your ability to have both eyes you lose your peripheral vision and you lose your ability to see things in multiple dimensions everything's kind of flat you can't really see steps. You don't make out that they are different in in sort of you know dimensions. It's not just like a, a one dimensional. Oh, that's just a thing I'm stepping on. And so there's a lot there about like the kind of injury, which eye it is, who is really behind uh, the source of the injury. For me, at least, um, I also have an injury in my eye, so I read into that a lot oh, more than maybe anyone oh, else would. Oh
2: wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the the medical stuff is really interesting because like it really is this case where they're like, well he's got this thing going on later. Wouldn't it be funny if we do something to show how that's done without necessarily putting a lot of thought into what it means yeah. and then getting the me, you know, having someone who can explain that meaning, I think is really valuable.
1: And that moment is come towards the end where he basically says, yeah, I will, I will not be, we know that he says that, but he kind of pushes the the eyeball options away And it's basically in the conclusion of this story about undercover, assimilating, shape-shifting. He decides, I'm not going to, I am just going to be me, the person who doesn't have both eyes. Why would I put in a a fake eyeball to make it seem like I do have two functioning eyes when I don't, which is an interesting sort of moment uh, throughout the different points in the film.
2: And from a narrative perspective, what's really cool about that is that that choice at that point, like in the 1990s, is what allows him to, um, it's what allows him to help um bring down shield in winter soldier because if he had gotten a glass eye he wouldn't be able to use the optical scanner
1: there it is damn
2: so, yeah
0: <laughs> well speaking about how the movie fits into the broader marvel history context i one of the things that i enjoyed about it being set in the 90s is it sort of lampshades the fact that this movie with a white woman superhero like could have been made in the 90s
2: uh-huh like marvel could have just
0: made this white woman military woman in the 90s uh especially actually as a society all my friends who enlisted in the 90s enlisted uh you know under clinton and did it for college money none yeah. of them did yeah. it because they like wanted to go bomb other people which isn't to say right. that some of them didn't get stuck like doing that but like the 90s military is not the george w bush trump military oh, yeah. no. or even obama military in some no. ways experience um, and my friends all got out. God, you know, thank, thank, you know, thank God. My friends all got out before nine eleven, so they didn't have to go and do any of that. But, um, but yeah, I just was like, I thought like the having it be in the nineties. There obviously was like Marvel U- cinematic universe reasons for doing it, but to me, it just lampshaded like we could have done this movie before, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I I love the moment in the blockbuster video where she sees the standee of True Lies and like just shoots oh. it.
2: Oh my god, so I saw someone very offended and claiming that the movie was misandrist because she shot the man and not the woman in the poster. Good god. Well, I actually did take that moment to be
0: significant in the sense that she's saying, that's enough of you, Arnold. I'm the new action hero. Oh yeah. um,
1: Did you you all notice that she picks up the right stuff?
0: Yes. It
2: was amazing. Yeah. 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 That was pretty. For those who
0: don't know, that was like the movie based on Tom Wolfe's book about astronaut, about the fighter pilots who like entered into the astronaut program and stuff.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, that was that was pretty great, pretty wonderful. There was there was a lot of little moments where. Um, the nostalgia of the technology—if is—if if, oh, you can yeah. be nostalgic about slow technology—um, were sort of these jokes. Um, and so for me, that was a lot of like, that's for the parents and for the adults in the yes. room, and kids, you'll get it later, right? Like, or not at all.
2: It. Yeah, <laughs> so we're waiting for it to load. Yes, so that's what's the moment. Really cool is yesterday I watched Sneakers for the first time probably mm. since the nineties, and it's amazing because <laughs> there's this part where they're like, "Oh my God, how do we get past this?" An electronic keypad. This is so difficult. <laughs> and so it was really fun to watch that in contrast because it really was like these things were state of the art and it was tough to hack a computer with a DVD or whatever. Yeah. I don't think they even had DVDs, did they? But Mm-mm, it you know, and so Yeah, so seeing <clears throat> that movie and then seeing a movie that was actually made in the nineties about really similar stuff. Was really cool, um, yeah. because all of those jokes are exactly the way these things were working non-humorously in the yeah, real yeah, movies. Yeah.
1: yeah, they were not funny then. But the, you know the the references that have been out there about like the sixteen different movie homages that this film is playing to. They're not just homages, they're like feminist version of the homages, right? Yeah. So you've got that moment where, um, I don't remember his name, you all are gonna tell me. Uh Jude Law, what's his character's name? Jan Rod. Jan Rod. Okay, so he is like come on show me what you got and he's like talking on and on and on and it's like do it without your weapon show me that you can like beat me and do all these things like with your woman power and he's just like going off and she just like takes up her hand and just like obliterates him right it's just like gets it out of the way which was an homage to um uh our good friend uh, harrison ford with um indiana jones and mm-hmm. the sort of like original indiana jones movie in that moment where there's this whole whip moment of let me show you these talents and indy just takes out his gun and you know shoots him dead and that's it but so you have yep. all these different homages to the film but it's a woman who is you know the empowered person who's just like showing you what's really what's up and and that was just like really great too if you could figure out all those 16 moments that was that was fantastic
0: narratively like based on the fact that she was not on earth in 1992 I don't know why come as you are by Nirvana is what was playing when she meets the Cree super intellig- supreme intelligence but thematically it was oh, great because yeah. that's the scene where she come as you are like the specific lyrics of the song itself aren't really this but the, the, the name of the song is come as you are and like this is her coming as her real self like she's ripping off her implant she's finally releasing her full powers um, and getting to be her own hero and like, come as you are. Like I connected that back to the scroll and they're, you know, struggling yeah. about when and how they can exist as in their own form versus be
1: closeted. But the um, chorus, but that the chorus choice. of that song is Memoria like memories, right? And so there's also this whole thing about, you know, her having to go back and forth and trying to uncover the true memories that she has about her true self. So I think there was a little bit more than Come As You Are. I think there's a lot in that song that was trying to really sort of capture that moment.
0: Any other big music uh, call-outs for folks? I like that she listened to Heart and had a Heart t-shirt like reminding the world that like yeah. they're all bands with rock bands with women. I mean honestly, the fact that Captain Marvel herself is established as having rock and roll oriented music taste meant a lot to me because I feel like as a as we've become a culture that recognizes the ways that sexism has stigmatized loving pop music. the the public dialogue around which kind of people like which kind of music has shifted to say it's okay for people to like pop. And a lot of women have come forward and said, you know what, I never liked that rock music. I just put up with it because of my boyfriend. I love rock music and it had nothing to do with any men that I ever dated. My love of rock music was actually a social problem when it came to meeting women, honestly. But like, it um, it was edifying for me to see a movie where unabashedly, like, here's a woman. She loves rock and roll. She's not doing it to make men like her. Like, this is a real thing. I love Guns N' Roses. Carol loves Guns
1: N' Roses. It was just so white, though. Like, there were some really great, great artists of music that came out in the 90s. I don't know. Public Enemy, just to name one. KRS-One. Like, there are some really great political music that came out from rap and hip-hop at that time, and that was noticeably absent throughout this film, as if there weren't other you know ethnic cultural groups uh or that white people can white like rap music or hip-hop but yeah i think it's
0: interesting how music sort of is both a tool of characterization but also can reveal whole holes in the knowledge of the people making movies
1: yes that's definitely clear yeah um But it was a great soundtrack. I I mean, it's not like I didn't enjoy or know any of those songs. Yeah, there was nothing about Um, like Walk This Way being referenced either about the sort of like collaboration of black and white artists, which could have maybe fit here.
2: Oh, that would have fit. Yeah. Yeah. And it actually Um, thematically fits really well with the movie. I
1: know. But yet it was not there. Yeah. Uh, Folks, if you're... Marvel, if you're listening, can you pay attention to this?
0: (laughs) Yeah. They should bring us in as soundtrack consultants, just saying. Um, uh, so one of the other, you know, like I mentioned, I think I mentioned before, like, I think feel like, you know, Carol is kind of being gaslit by every man in oh, this yeah. movie at some point, especially her ex, Dion Rog. Rogg. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the time, I think when Marvel has sort of subtext that implies romantic interactions between male and female characters or when it explicitly has romantic relationships between male and female characters in the movies it pisses me off because it feels like it's very perfunctory it's not really important to the story they're telling it's like sort of basic i guess for lack of a better word but i liked that there's this inference that they have a romantic well i wouldn't even call it romantic because it's too fucked up but like that there is some sexual relationship that has existed between her and Jan Rog because it is very realistic uh, as a messed up thing that she would have gone through, that this man who is gaslighting her, who's like lying about her past, who puts himself up as the man who saved her life, who puts himself up as mm-hmm. a mentor to her, isn't really any of those things, and is the one who's holding her back in the end.
2: Well, it's also really interesting, I think, on the heels of so many conversations about this in the comic indu- comics industry in particular, where you know we've talked a lot in the past couple of years about powerful men in the comics industry who have mentored quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes that you can't see, um, you know, young female comics professionals in ways that then they've really taken advantage of and really harmed their careers. Um, And in some cases, you know, have either entered into relationships with them or, even actually, like, explicitly assaulted them, Um, and that those things have been, you know, that those things have been really coming out, I think, more and more frequently, but it's a serious problem in the comics industry in particular Mm -hmm. right now, Um, and so to see that sort of relationship in a comic book movie, um, I think is pretty valuable, even if the men who are doing those sorts of things might not even notice that it's there.
1: I don't know that I saw that as as so explicit like I I don't know that I saw the two of them as being uh, having some sort of previous relationship is can you point me to a point in the movie where like that was kind of like inferred I mean to me it was like she wakes him up in kind of
0: the middle of the night expecting to have some sort of physical encounter with him which they perform as being a spar spars are kind of sexualized in a lot of these genres
2: and um you know he's
0: in like in his bathrobe and he's like oh are we doing this again sure Um, that was kind of the one time actually that i really felt like it might have been romantic rather than just i don't really want to call it romantic but whatever sexual rather than it just sort of being this trope of a man mentoring a woman and undermining her in the process but um but for me that was kind of the moment
1: okay okay
0: anything else on that tea
2: no i i think it was kind of like deliberately left vague Mm -hmm. um you know and for and i think for me like that's important because there are so many young women and people you know people who read as women um who have been in lots of different variations of that relationship and you know so so making it making it something that can be a little bit more universal where it's not explicit exactly what it is but Mm -hmm. we know that he's mentored her and that he's Basically put her in this position where he is her hero um, and, you know, and that she trusts him regardless of regardless of what else is um, is in that relationship. It's I think that's the part that matters.
1: Yeah, I think I'm sort of over films, particularly sci fi where the the main jedi or the main sort of like keeper of knowledge who is training up new people are always men. And I think that mm-hmm. this particular film was super interesting because again going back to the like you don't really know the truth yeah. and you you know you don't really you're not really widening the frame and going deep enough into what could really be possible here where it ends up being that her true mentor the one who really influences her to fight for justice and to fight, you know, and find people, you know, a home and all these things isn't him at all. It ends up being Wendy Lawson, right? Like, and so I think that that there's this moment that I really appreciated that where all of a sudden it was like, yeah, you thought it was the guy because we always think it's the guy because it always happens to be the guy. It was never the guy. It's always the woman and we just don't (laughs) give women the Uh credit for being the mentors and the real sages. Like, how many times is it really Princess Leia and not actually, you know, like a different character? It really isn't Han Solo. Uh, it was really Princess Leia all the time who was the real mentor. She becomes, you know, the the, the captain, the, the the ruler of everything. So I just feel like there are moments too because of our own sort of like patriarchy and misogyny that we ourselves don't see the women characters who, oh, when yeah. they're clearly defined as the mentors, we don't even see that either. And so I think that, that there's there's a lot there to unpack throughout this film about like what do you really believe and what do you really need to come to terms with and grips with in a reckoning of sorts to really make things right and so I, I think it's it's super fascinating I would love to see what's going to happen in this next uh, sort of you know few films that are coming out in the Avenger series to see if Captain Marvel yeah. ends up being a mentor to other folks as well as this like you've existed this whole time who were you and how women can be men to one another instead of this sort of like constant male trope of let me tell you and share with you the power that i have well i mean in the comics sorry
2: you, oh i was just gonna say if adult monica doesn't show up in endgame i'm gonna be incredibly disappointed
1: mm, mm. um yeah, and
2: speaking photon. of someone who you who really looks up to carol and and i, I really want to see like how she develops as a character. And I'm really excited about the potential that there might be two Captain Marvels at once.
1: Yeah, that would be exciting, especially since she was the one. It's funny, as you just mentioned that it's really this little black girl who has been actually the mentor to, to then, you know, Veers or, or the real Carol, because she, remember, there's that whole montage where she's like, this is who you are. Yes. This is when you were a kid. This is who like she's bringing her back. She is literally the one who really starts to bring her back as she's showing her pictures and visuals to remind her of the stories that are somehow locked in there. And so, you know, beyond just that it's uh, men versus women who are the mentors, there's also age there in terms of like who mm-hmm. has the most power. So that particular character, as I was mentioning earlier, that the real, you know, uh, real life heroes usually are the ones who are really wearing the uniforms, as in, you know, state-sanctioned military and, and, and police officers and whatnot. This, there's also these moments where it's young children who are also uh, the sort of heroes in different films um, within, you know, sort of sci-fi and superhero genres. And what's interesting is who those then children become. My money... It's not that she becomes another uh, Captain Marvel, but that she becomes uh, somebody who works with Nick Fury and be- wears a badge, and that's her way of being a superhero. And that, or joining the Air Force, because times have changed. Moms, it's not going to be like this anymore. <laughs> and I say moms because now I'm mm-hmm. really referencing the movie, the-, uh, the TV show, The Fosters, because these two moms the- <laughs> and their black and whiteness are very much so in there. So I feel like you know, there's a possibility that she won't become a quote real superhero. She'll become a a real life superhero by wearing a badge or wear a uniform with a gun
2: so well, do you know back... who monica is in the comics
1: no tell me everything
2: okay so yeah. monica is actually captain marvel before carol is in the comics what yeah yeah, yeah. so and a lot of what they do so um
1: how does that even how is that
2: even possible so she's she's actually in the harbor patrol um And she basically has a very similar um, origin story to what Carol has in this movie, where she gets exposed to powerful magical energies and then is able to do, you know, she basically gets Captain Marvel powers. They're not quite the same as Carol's, um, but basically then she um she yeah so she becomes captain marvel um she leads the avengers for a while so she's actually, person, yeah she's actually the leader of the avengers um so and then what the really upsetting thing is that she eventually uh like has all of her superpowers destroyed um she gets them back later but she kind of gets like set aside as captain marvel um and then she comes back under a bunch. she has a whole bunch of different superhero names over the years. But that's in the comics, she actually predates Carol as Captain Marvel.:
1: Well, Ms. Carol I, was originally Ms Marvel. Ms. Marvel. I have was, n- no idea yeah. what's going to happen as these yeah. films roll out. And I really hope that that is something like that, where she becomes the the next version, right? Like, so we're going to have this next generation of superheroes. I hope it's her. I hope it's, you know, Cherie. I hope it becomes all these like younger people who have become superheroes in the superhero form. But I'm telling you right now, I'm also very much so betting and fearing that she won't be that in the next generation and that yeah. we're going to see her being a different sort of version of, quote, superhero, wearing a badge or being in some sort of like military moment. And that's going to be a great big bummer for me. Yeah,
0: I mean, in the comics, like some, you know, fans have definitely talked about like how it's messed up that you had a white woman replacing a black woman in a certain yes. title and mantle. Right. Right. And then yeah. Carol actually does become the mentor to to the, to the new Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, who, yeah. like, you know, Pakistani-American girl is, like, one of the characters we most need in the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. since, like, so far immigrant families and, like, people who aren't Christian are, are mostly, like, we're Skrull. That's who we are in the Marvel <laughs> Universe. So I really hope they bring that in, too. One thing that I'm worried about in terms of the future of the comics Sorry, the future of the movies that I'm concerned with enough that I actually didn't mention it in my article for Wired because I don't want this memed into something that is dangerous. Is that, OK, if the scroll, the scroll are many things. But one of the interpretations of the scroll is that the scroll are Jewish. The movie ends with Carol going to lead them off to find a new homeworld. Now, yeah. God willing, they find an uninhabited homeworld. Uh, I would much rather make space for us here on Earth where we are uh, without having to live in a closeted way. But like the dangers of having a movie where Jews are taken to find their own homeworld is like some people are going to come out of that, be like Zionist propaganda. And with Michael Eisner in charge of Disney Studios, it's like, yeah, I see why they could say that. Oh, I really I hope that's not the case. I definitely
2: thought of that during the movie. I was like, wait, they're like taking them to find the promised land now and they're going to displace somebody else.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: And frankly, that's dangerous. Like, I don't yeah. need more messages in the public of, like, how, like, of, of, like, Jews as, like, going to replace other people. Like, that's
2: Good. not... Yes. It, it exists
0: yeah. in the real world, and, like, we can talk about it in terms of Zionism, like, as a problem, but, like, I don't want entire conversation around squirrel to be subsumed by a conversation about zionism versus anti-zionism when there's like a lot of things going on Uh, i mean i think that the movie that handled that question better um was thor 3 where like there's that at the end of it where where you have um uh, where you have like uh, thor really reconfiguring odin's words and saying you know asgard isn't a place it's a people I had, like, major Jew diaspora moments. Yes. I'm like, thank you. We yeah. don't have to go and, like, conquer shit to exist as a society. Like, oh, God, that was that was beautiful to me. And I knew that the filmmaker was making that particularly from the perspective of indigenous people, um, which is, like, not actually an experience that we get to hold in any place, uh, but, like, felt really relatable to me as a
1: Jewish person who is not a Zionist. Yeah. I think there's, uh, I mean, but yes and... I think that there's something to a narrative that if you cannot stay assimilated, you gots to go, right? Like the, they were already living, some of the scrolls were already living, if not in hiding as shape-shifting in the US, right? Pretending mm-hmm. to be these other folks. And when that was the case, it was okay. And it's as soon as they are no longer assimilating in that way and shapeshifting to be like everyone else, then that's when they have to find a different home. And so I think that there's there's an expanded narrative there too that, um, yes, this could definitely be linked to folks who are Jewish and, and, and all these different sort of things and, and needing to be, you know, like not just displaced but find a new place uh, and a homeland and all of that. But I also think that there's something about fit in or get out, which encompasses and includes then a lot of other sort of, you know, communities and cultural, you know, spaces and and folks who who are in them um, to see themselves in that as well. And so it it makes that the solution. Like Captain Marvel, what you can do to help us is help us find the home since this couldn't be it. And we won't be accepted here instead of Captain Marvel saying, yeah, I'm going to find you a home right here like you were saying, Alana, and I will defend you right here. And I will help you be seen as whole people right here where you are. And so I think that the idea of saying that the answer is to leave because you're not assimilating and to assimilate is not what you want to be is is the thing that is is, is the problem, right? That like, oh, see, we just need to find them a home and it can't be here um, versus yeah. what it would have been like if that was different.
2: It would have been so easy to to correct that message in the movie, too, just by making it that they wanted to be somewhere else. Like, if there had been a specific place that they had been forced out of that they needed to go back to, like, just that, you know, like, we want to be in our home and we've been kicked out would change that.
0: Although I think that would get hit even more as being, like, Zionist for, like, specifically, like, I don't Fair know. enough, yeah. It's, it's just, it's just, it's complicated shit. And like, I think that's one of the things that I appreciate about the movie is that it, it is complicated shit. Um, but I appreciated it. And I, one of the reasons I went to see the movie twice is I wanted to confirm this, like the movie making clear that like the scroll had been living, they'd been living in peace, but living in sort of eventually ended up living in drag as another form of alien yeah. on that other world on Torfa. And that it was actually the Crete Empire that had trashed Torfa and like blamed blames it on those blames it on the scrolls.
2: Yes. Which sounds so much like the US military.
0: Yep. Yep. Um I I I wanna sort of we should probably like wrap to a close even though I could actually talk about this literally all day. And a god, and again, folks, like I I please check out my piece in Wired Um but uh I wanna sort of just reflect back on like one of the things with the, that we're coming into this movie from with the Skrull in the past, like the very first appearance of the Skrull in the Marvel comics, is in Fantastic Four number two, and the Skrull like end up getting tricked into becoming turning into cows, and staying that way. And they're like in the future, they're like literally ground into meat and eaten by humans, and then the people get mad cow disease, like that is the level of dehumanization of how Mm -hmm. scrolls are treated in the comics. Um, So I really did not know what was going to be happening with them here. And I am like, like it really was the thing that touched me most about the movie was seeing like, and this is not me criticizing the original Jack Kirby's like story. Like I think he might've actually been self-aware as he often Mm -hmm. is (laughs) when making this depiction where the scroll like are with their little skull caps. I mean, again, this is too Jewish writers and artists who are basically assimilated for the sake of survival um like making a story in which uh the scroll are saying no no don't kill us we promise to cause no more harm we hate being scroll we want to be we'd rather be anything else and like thinking about that is really heartbreaking
2: yeah so i think one of the things that the particularly the how the scroll were used in this movie and that sort of moment where you realize that they're not actually the villains of the piece is something that the MCU has consistently done really well is create stories that surprise people who know the comics really well. Right. Just as much as they surprise people who've never read them before. I remember feeling that way about the way that, you know, and it's not a great movie in a lot of ways, but the way that they handled Black Widow and Iron Man 2, um, and just not knowing, assuming that they were going to start her as a villain, and then, oh wait, she's already working for S.H.I.E.L.D. And the way that they've been able to sort of create these narrative twists, it's the same thing with the Skrull, where you assume, based on the way the Skrull have historically been treated in the comics, that, this is the villain, and this is the narrative we're gonna expect to see, and then no, wait, it's not. Was so great.
0: Thank you, uh, Felicia. Do you have anything else you want to hit up before we end?
1: Oh, I was just thinking about the Stan Lee moments. Um,
2: <laughs> uh,
1: how at the very beginning uh, of the film, before it even begins, it says, "Wasn't it yeah. like thanks, Stan?"
2: Yes, um, they never did
1: that for Jack Kirby. Nope, nope. nope. Noticeably absent was anything for Kirby. Um, yeah. And then we we see the cameo of Stan Lee. You know, uh, picking up. A, he's he's on the on the train and he's reading a Mallrats script. And, um, and he's saying this particular line from the script, um, folks who may or may not know, right. Like Stanley was in mall rats. That was sort of like a, an early cameo that he had in, in films before he was in the Marvel films. But the line that he says, which is kind of gibberish throughout is trust me, true believer, right? Like he just keeps saying this thing, like, trust me, true believer. And I just think that there's something also there with the, the, the moment of trust and believer also just being this this opening sort of beginning moment um, of Mm -hmm. some of these sort of like trust and and belief moments starting to shift in the film.
2: Oh, that's cool.
1: That's the only other thing I would add.
2: I do have, I have one, one closing remark, Mm -hmm. which is that at the end of the movie, Nick Fury changes the name of the Protector Initiative right. to the Avenger Initiative based on Carol's call sign. Mm-hmm. But if we went by Carol's call sign in the, in the comics, it would be the Cheeseburger Initiative.
1: That was her call <laughs> sign? Her call yes. sign in the original
2: was With Cheeseburger. No. Oh
1: no. Oh my God, these are amazing things. But I, but also think about this, right? Like, okay, so take out the cheeseburger as being the truth, and now I'm going to believe you about that. Trust me, true believer. I think that that the thing that's super interesting is to change the name from protector to avenger, right? Like to protect versus to avenge. Two completely different, super different. Yeah, very, 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 very different. And I think that that is something um, that I'm really going to be holding on to um, as I look at the rest of these films coming out to sort of like have a, have a wrap up conversation of the agenda films of this of this generation to be like, so were they protecting or were they avenging? and what were they doing? what what narratives, what tropes, what things were they protecting and what things were they actually avenging yes. uh, throughout this different uh, movie series And so that's that's super interesting. and what cheeseburgering were they doing, apparently. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yay team carol and maria forever hearts and hearts yes. um well thank you both for joining us uh, thank you this is graphic policy you can find me on twitter at ilana brooklyn uh we will be back actually i have an amazing interview with two really great comics writers coming up and uh, actually another comics writer awesome woman she is also coming up so there will be more comics content i assure you and until then keep it geeky